First of all, also, thank you very much. It's been really already a very interesting day for me as a lawyer to have a chance to listen to, to all of you. Um, and maybe as a slight caveat, I'm also, this is also quite uh, still a uh, work in progress, um, where I'm really looking forward to also receiving your comments and perspectives from other disciplines <laughs> and um, hoping to integrate those in my research. Um, so in my presentation, um, I will uh, have a look at um, how the victims' voices were heard during the Colombian peace process, and especially now also in its implementation phase. Um, and especially uh, with taking one example, which are the mothers of Soacha, uh, which I will explain later on. Um, and then also have a brief look at the, the new transitional justice mechanism, um, the integrated system for truth, justice, reparations and guarantees of non-recurrence and possibilities of participation for victims in those mechanisms. And finally, um, have a quick look at uh, the possible roles of international legal mechanisms and fora and what those might mean for giving victims voices. Um, just to give you a very brief context, um, in Colombia, in the five decades of the conflict, more than eight million Colombians suffered human rights violations and are registered in the victims' registry. Uh, there have been more than 250,000 deaths of civilians, seven million people were displaced, and thousands of forced disappearances. Um, there were a variety of actors, several left-wing guerrilla groups, right-wing paramilitary groups, the armed forces, intelligence services, all involved in the conflict, which was on the one hand an armed conflict, but also social political violence, uh, which is also still taking place. And um, as we discussed earlier as well, this is something which is still ongoing, so especially the situation for human rights defenders had, has actually worsened in the last year. So that last year, every three days, a human rights defender was assassinated in Colombia. Um, and between 2012 and 2016, these peace negotiations took place between the biggest guerrilla group, FARC, and the Colombian government. And they're still ongoing with a smaller guerrilla group, the ELN, on very substantive issues, which was really interesting to see that th those were also included besides sort of areas related only with conflict termination, so such as rural development, political participation, and especially also victims. So a whole chapter was dedicated to the rights of victims and to the question of how to fulfill their rights to truth and justice while offering incentives to the guerrilla groups to demobilize and also to the military for, to have political support from their side as well. And those were agreed uh, after 15 very long months of negotiations, lots of hearings, um, also with international exp experts who gave insights on the nowadays existing minimum standards of accountability which they would have to follow. And um, looking at the way victims participated in those uh, negotiations, more than 17,000 proposals were submitted by various fora, online, by writing, to the negotiation table. There were three big regional fora and one big national forum with more than 3,000 victims participating um, to, to discuss proposals and send them to Havana where the negotiations were taking place, which was organized by the United Nations and the National University. There were, which was very new, um, several delegations with in total 60 victims who tra actually traveled to Havana to present at the negotiation table 
um, their stories, their preoccupations, and their proposals for, for peace and justice, including the mothers of Soacha, <laughs> I'll come to in a moment. Um, and this victim participation, which was very much a direct participation, was really um, due to and pos possible thanks to uh, both a very strong human rights movement in Colombia and strong victims' associations demanding those rights and also sort of international standards in the United Nations developing in that, that regard. Um, and so I think the Colombian model there is something where we can learn from for many peace processes which might follow worldwide. And also that participation had a high symbolic importance um, for the recognition of the victims as political subjects and to provide them with dignity in accepting them as victims and having them heard directly there by what were uh, from both sides perpetrators as well of the conflict, both the FARC and military representatives in Havana. Um, and as a sub-note as well, uh, a special gender subcommission was created since 2014, which is also quite unheard of in international conflict um, uh, resolution. Um, the final agreement was then announced in August 2016, and as uh, many of you might have heard, there was then a referendum in Colombia uh, on the 2nd of October 2016, which was narrowly lost. Um, so the majority said no to the peace agreement, um, and the minority actually supported the peace agreement, minority still being 49.8%, 49 but still they lost. Um, and it was interesting also to see how the victims' um, narratives played out in, in, in the whole uh, lead-up to, to that uh, peace referendum and a huge gap between rural and city population um, where uh, lots of um, areas which were most affected by the conflict actually supported the peace agreement and others were uh, against it, also based on sometimes quite uh, misleading arguments of the so-called gender ideology and there's a whole sort of, uh, area where, where we could go into very much detail and we don't have time for it. Um, then a couple of days after the peace uh, uh, referendum, um, Santos actually still did win the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and then renegotiations started with the opponents of the peace agreement, a new accord was signed and then also ratified this time not through a referendum but by Congress by the end of 2016. And by now there has been demobilization of the FARC and which is now a political party um, and there is ongoing legislative impl implementation of the peace agreement in various areas but all of, all of it is taking much longer than everyone had hoped for and there's a lot of uh, political um, forces and the disagreement which makes the implementation very complicated. Um, and there was just an election last, last weekend uh, where the political party of President Santos lost its majority and the right wing supporters of the uh, um, opponents of the agreement lost a lot of, uh, gained a lot of force and momentum. So we'll see what happens in the presidential elections now in May. But now turning to the story of the mothers of Oh, there was also some pictures from the implementation and the participation, what I failed to mention, um, that also in all those legislative hearings and now hearings before the Constitutional Court, um, also the victims' associations, uh, human rights organizations, all, always also got the chance to at least comment uh, on, on the proposals on how to implement the peace agreement, especially the victims' chapter. Now finally, yes, turning to the mothers of Soacha. Um, so uh, to tell the their case briefly and in January 2008 um, Leonardo Porras, one of those who was affected by those cases, never came home. He was living in a very poor neighborhood of Bogota 
Um, he was 26 years old, but had a mental capacity of eight years old, who could not use his right arm or right, had a limp in his right leg. Um, and he just didn't come home. And his mother and his whole family went out searching for him all over the city, went to hospitals, prisons, forensics, searched among the homeless and junkies of Bogota and couldn't find him for several months. And the state didn't listen to them. Uh, and then finally in September 2016, his mother, uh, Luz Marina Bernal, received a call from forensics and they told her that her son, the body of her son had been found. Um, he had actually been killed four days after he had disappeared in the very opposite end of Colombia, 1,000 kilometers away from Bogota. Um, and he had been killed by mili a military brigade. Uh, apparently, um, so they were saying, that he was the leader of a, um, a rebel group um, and he was dressed up as a, uh, as a guerrilla fighter with a gun in his right hand, which he couldn't use. Um, and then Luz Marina found out that her, her case wasn't the only case, but there were several mothers searching for their sons, and uh, actually 19 had disappeared in the same months of the time, and many of them were found in that region, the other end of Colombia. Um, and so they came together and formed the group of the mothers of Soacha, of that neighborhood in Bogota. Um, and um, their case became public, and the state first came out in uh, defending the military, saying that, um, that in, yes, they were guerrilla fighters, um, and that they were, had been killed in combat. Um, but it was, especially with the case of uh, Fayer Leonardo, quite easily to demonstrate that that wasn't the case. And in the other cases, some had boots on, like, on the reverse, or two times the boot for the right leg, on, and it was just things didn't add up. So it became this very emblematic case of extrajudicial executions um, where um, also in the end um, the government couldn't deny it anymore. Um, and um, the, I, th I found it quite interesting to see also the media reactions which at the very beginning just supported what the state and the military was saying but then the counter-narrative of the mothers of Soacha and human rights organizations actually managed to overcome um, that, that official discourse in a way while still the President Uribe had a lot of public support. So I think that's really interesting to see how, um, how the media and sort of narratives and counter-narratives work. And Uribe is still, some weeks after, said that, well, the, uh, those young boys didn't go to precisely to pick co coffee, sort of implying that they were going there for a reason and to commit crimes, which wasn't the case. Um, so that was uh, quite interesting and, uh, and then a couple of weeks after that, after an internal commission of the military, they actually had to dismiss uh, three generals and 24 military <coughs> officials from, from service. Uh, and afterwards um, uh, there were some investigations going on also by the prosecutor's office in 2013 a first case of, of those false, the so-called false positives cases. So as, as I said, they, the military justified those cases saying that they were killed in combat to have positive results. And an important element of those cases was the reason why they did that is because they received um, rewards. So they would either have uh, vacation days additionally or they would re even receive money or in case of higher ranking officials would be ascended to become a general. So that was sort of the whole reasoning which made it really atrocious. Um, and so that was finally recognized in 2013 in, in the first uh, court judgment. Um, and 
so I tried to have sort of a timeline of, uh, of what happened in, in that case and to show how media attention worked, how important were also sort of statements by uh, a UN Special Rapporteur of Human Rights. Um, there, were, uh, there was a tour which the, mother, the Mothers of Suacha did, uh, facilitated by Amnesty International, also to have an audience outside of Colombia and uh, tell their stories in, in Europe and be, li be listened there. They received several human rights awards, um, and at the same time, sort of the judicial process continued, and there were some more judgments, but most for the lower-ranking members of the military and soldiers. Um, and then, what I found really interesting when when I read the program to uh, to today's event, and I saw that Anik was um, also presenting on <laughs> Antigona, um, they um, also. Um, developed a theater play based on Antigona called Tribunal Tribunal de Mujeres, so Tribunal of Women, where they you know, one of the four um, real stories they tell, besides sort of having the, the traditional uh, play uh, or elements of that, um, is the story of the mothers of Soacha. And actually some of the pictures already on, on the slide beforehand uh, are excerpts and images from, from that play. Um, which also, um, it was a collective creation by some uh, professional artists and actors and also the victims themselves. So the mothers of Soacha themselves, or three, three of them at least, participate in the play um, and are on stage along with some other um, women who have been um, survivors of, uh, of the conflict uh, in Colombia. Um, and so I've, I find it very impressive how on stage this diverse group of, of actors and w women victims actually transform their pain and memory into poetry and political action and really uh, try to make um, their audiences um, reflect on, on what has happened. Um, and such as Antigona and sort of similar to what Anik mentioned, also the, the way they re resist and disobey similar to Antigona and demanding the dignified burial of their disappeared um, sons and family members and searching for justice um, is, is very, um, very impressive. Um, and so in 2014, they, there was the premiere of, of that uh, play and then afterwards they also had tours to, to the United States, to, to Canada, Spain, Mexico, some other countries. Um, and they still show it also in Colombia um, once in a while. Another thing the mo mothers of Swatch have been doing is also outreach at schools and universities, trying to tell their story also to students um, and to, to share with them also the other aspects of, um, of the conflict which traditionally has been silenced. Um, and as I already mentioned, um, uh, some of, uh, one of the mothers, Luz Marina, um, the mother of Fayel Leonardo was also part of the first victim delegation that traveled to Havana in, in August 2014 um, to discuss um, the uh, chapter on victims and uh, truth and justice issues. Um, and she was also actually uh, proposed to, to also receive the Nobel Prize in representation of all the victims in Colombia. Um, together with Santos and Timoshenko, so originally it was meant to be sort of the FARC leader, the President Santos, and a representative of the victims to receive the Nobel Prize, which they changed at the last minute. Um, and um, yeah, and very recently she actually also participated in the elections to Senate, which I found just very interesting from the political empowerment perspective on, on, on that, um, and the whole, within 10 years, how, how much um, 
she evolved and now uh, represents uh, uh, victims in a more general way. And sort of the last picture down here is a picture uh, with the ICC prosecutor Fatou Ben Souda last year when because uh, they are also in very much interested in this case. And so that's actually where the case is right now. The question is, will it be part of the transitional justice mechanisms in Colombia? Might it be even someday <laughs> be brought to the International Criminal Court in The Hague? Um, and how can actually accountability be achieved for the high-ranking officers implied in that whole sort of atrocious um, um, plan to find um, young boys from poor neighborhoods and dress them up as guerrilla fighters in order to receive rewards and benefits. Um, uh, so to, to have a look very briefly on, on, on the, this new transitional justice system which will, is about to be put in place in, in Colombia. Um, it, and the fascinating thing is that not only during the negotiations, um, but also in, in its creation, the way the, co the concept um, is thought, uh, the victims are thought to be at the very center of, of that whole system. And uh, the big question is if that will become true. Um, so it emphasizes really the restorative and reparative measures seeking to facilitate testimonies and reparations um, rather than traditional punishments of, of the perpetrators, such as jail time. So for that purpose, it has uh, three mechanisms, the Truth Commission, a special jurisdiction for peace, uh, a unit for the search of disappeared persons, and as well as sort of uh, reparation measures and guarantees of non-recurrence, which are apparent in the various of those mechanisms and also throughout the whole peace agreement. Um, and the special jurisdiction for peace really has the idea that if the participants in that jurisdiction tell the plain truth of what happened and what happened especially also to the victims and to the disappeared and provide reparations and guarantee that they will never repeat their crimes, then they can expect to avoid jail time and instead have alternative sanctions uh, such as confinement to a community area or types of, sort of social work. Um, and so the idea is to, to, to have accountability for international crimes, which is not where it's nowadays accepted, especially in a region such as Colombia, belonging to the Inter-American Regional Human Rights System, um, that there can't, can't be a complete amnesty of, of such crimes, but to have alternative or reduced sanctions in those cases. Um, and amnesty for political crimes, which still can be amnesty for the FARC, and also on the side of the military, uh, you, uh, run renunciation, um, a waiver of punishment uh, for crimes of the military, which do not amount to international crimes. And um, this new special jurisdiction for peace just opened, physically opened its doors um, last week on the 15th of March. And there are still many things going on in terms of laws. The uh, rules of procedure still need to be passed through Congress. The Constitutional Court still has to revise all those norms. So many things are still very unclear. And there are some also uh, worrying um, developments in, in how some of the, those um, statutes are phrased, which depart a little bit from the idea of the peace agreement. But in general, um, it is... Um, they insist very much that it should be victim-centered and that victims should have um, good opportunities to participate in those proceedings and have their narratives be told as part of both the Truth Commission and also especially what I'm looking at, the Special Jurisdiction for Peace, 
um, with having the right to legal advice and representation, having psychosocial um, assistance, submitting reports and evidence, intervening in hearings, disputing evidence as well, questioning witnesses, presenting observations, um, and also to, uh, to appeal um, decisions when they do not agree with them. Um, and so really the question now becomes if, if all, all those rights are actually uh, fulfilled in, in reality once the, these mechanisms um, start, start to work. Um, and yeah, as I said, the Truth Commission um, has just a period of three years of, of work where it's supposed to clarify the whole complexities of the conflict in Colombia and human rights violations its actors cause. So it's a huge um, um, task and uh, we'll see if three years is really going to be sufficient for that. But also it has the idea to include uh, victims' voices as, as uh, much as possible in, in hearings and submitting reports. Etc. And um, I think my time is already. Um, and the last part I wanted to look at is the role of international mechanisms and fora. Um, so, as I already mentioned, that there is nowadays a very well recognized international law duty to investigate crimes against humanity. Uh, to, or to extradite and prosecute the per perpetrators, so either in your own country or another country where they come from or where the crimes were committed. And that is quite clear in, this, in several legal instruments, um, such as the Genocide Convention, Conventions Against Torture, etc., and especially now also the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, which is one of the pictures I have here as one instrument. Um, and um, what I also find very interesting is, is um, the possibilities not only established through these international mechanisms um, and instruments, but also ways which um, victims um, and relatives and victim associations have found to actually search for avenues and fora which might not be as obvious such as was the case in Argentina especially and Chile where they then went to Spain and to bring their cases because the possibilities weren't, uh, weren't there in Argentina and Chile because of the amnesty laws to bring cases in other countries because um, the victims were nationals of those countries or, um, or maybe also the perpetrators or also another principle of universal jurisdiction which is sort of the possibility for the most horrendous crimes to bring cases anywhere in the world. Um, and so they really tried to find avenues um, to, um, to search for justice and accountability. Um, and I think that really helped to build up the pressure besides the uh, increase in social movements, which Anik also mentioned with uh, the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo or the hijos and hijas, sort of the, the sons and daughters of the disappeared or um, uh, of those who suffered from, from the, con the dictatorship in Argentina with their scratches and other things. And that sort of really helped, I think, to have both, both sides, pressure from the outside and pressure from, from within the countries to actually overcome impunity. And on top of that, um, the sort of increasing um, international jurisprudence, so with those conventions I already mentioned, but also, and those are the bottom pictures here on the right from the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, which uh, pronounced some very important uh, decisions with regard to amnesty laws and that's not possible to have just a blanket amnesty 
um, because that contravenes the rights of victims to truth and justice and to have their cases investigated and to, to know what happened. Um, so I think um, it's really sort of the myriad of, of, of avenues which play together and which really helps to, to ensure that um, victims have the possibility not, not to only have one way of, of having their voices heard and finding justice, but actually several and that interplay which really helps to overcome impunity. Um, and, and yeah, so, so maybe to end with the International Criminal Court again, and as I already mentioned, they already are um, having an, uh, an open examination into, what, into Colombia and what's happening there. And uh, that's been going on for more than 10 years now, but they've, one of the cases they actually focus on is the cases of the so-called uh, false positives of those extrajudicial executions. Uh, where they very closely follow also what is going on in Colombia in terms of investigations and judgments and, and to what level um, are they actually prosecuting those who are most responsible for those cases. Um, because if they don't, the possibility increases that, they, that those cases might actually end up in The Hague. Um, so that special interest I think really uh, is, is, is something um, very positive in that sense because it really puts Colombia under, under pressure and that sort of the idea of the International Criminal Court in that sense is um, the principle of positive complementarity. So the International Criminal Court will only intervene if there aren't sufficient investigations on the national level, but that also means that having the threat of the International Criminal Court sort of lurking over the shoulder of prosecutors and judges, they know if they don't do their job right, it might go to The Hague, so they better do it themselves in a good way. Um, so what that means for the peace process in Colombia, of course, is also that that pressure is there. And the question is if that's sufficient, because right now it's, there are some very technical sort of international criminal law aspects where it doesn't look like the pressure is sufficient and we'll see what happens. Um, and just on a closing note, I, I really think that um, it's a very interesting model, the Colombian model of having a direct participation of victims at the negotiation table as an important driver for transitional justice. Uh, because at the very beginning, both negotiating parties didn't want to have anything to do with accountability. Well, anyway, we're not responsible. And it became clear that after lots of uh, involvement and pressure by, um, by uh, the victims, victims' organizations, human rights organizations, United Nations, uh, that that's not a possibility anymore. Um, and um, now we have to see what that victim-centered approach to transitional justice in this integrated system, which is about to be established in Colombia, um, if those promises actually can be fulfilled. And yeah, as I said, I think this variety of four to share their stories and to have their voices heard is really very important to find uh, new avenues and to, for accountability um, in Colombia. And I want to end with a quote from the Mothers of Suacha where they say that uh, it's necessary to tell our story and transform our pain into poetry, strength and memory. I think that's just very beautiful. Es necesario contar y transformar el dolor en poesía, fuerza y memoria. <laughs>